Tonight's episode of Board Chitless is sponsored by The Game Steward. The Game Steward is an online game store offering Kickstarter board games out of print and imported games at reasonable prices. It's time to play. Right, so on today's episode of Board Chitless, I'm delighted to say we have Artem Safarov joining us today. Artem is a creative game designer who launched and successfully funded his first game, Cauldron, on Kickstarter back in 2015, drawing nearly a thousand backers. But now he's back with his second Kickstarter, Unbroken, which has turned out to be something of a phenomenon, drawing in over 10,000 backers and over £200,000, um, which is staggering. So, Artem, how the heck are you feeling today? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm feeling awesome because I get to talk to you um, and your lovely <laughs> listeners. Hi, listeners. Um, second, I feel great because of the popularity of Unbroken in UK and my chance to speak with some of the, bro- uh, or the podcasters from UK. I get to hear my name spoken with a British accent, which is a special experience for me. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, but overall, I'm still, I think, sort of coming to grips with the amazing success uh, that this campaign has gathered and just really feeling overwhelmed with uh, with the support that it got and uh, just the amount of interest and enthusiasm and passion that people have put towards it to make it what it is. But it's starting to subside a little bit into the point where now that there's about a week left in the campaign, I'm starting to orient myself more towards all right now. Now that the excitement is there now i need to make sure that all this works and i get the games to people on time all the success is very well deserved you worked so hard on producing this and getting it to where it is Um, and i think most of our listeners would uh, reverse the opinion about the accent and agree with me that you have the exotic accent on the show today yes i I do have a bit of a a bit of a russian there and now that they say it you know it's, it's interesting given the relationship between russia and uk that might not be a great thing right now. <laughs> well, who cares what's happening between the countries? As long as we're friends, that's well, the main thing. You know thing. what? I, I am Canadian, so we have the same queen. So we're, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I'm going to uh, ask you about Unbroken shortly, but let's go back to the beginning first. And can you tell us a little bit about who you are, your gaming interests, and how you got started in board game design in the first place? Absolutely. So... As long as I can remember myself, I was really into uh, fantasy and just the stories that evolved from that kind of world and the adventures that these stories relay through uh, their exciting narratives. So I think it all started with sort of old uh, computer games with uh, RPGs like, you know, Baldur's Gate and, you know, even earlier than that. So that that kind of fair. And surprisingly, in a bit of a reverse, yeah. usually people start with pen and paper D&D and then come to uh, computer RPGs. For me, it was the reverse. I had no idea that, you know, tabletop RPGs was a thing. And when I found out, it completely blew my mind that like, wait, I can just do that? I can just make up whatever I want? That was an amazing experience. And uh, it started um, a very long love affair with uh, with RPGs that lasts, I think, to this point. Um, I think I started getting into them around sort of 2000s, right about when I immigrated to Canada and uh, never really stopped. And one of the things that I found as I got older and got a family and, you know, work life became more demanding is that RPGs are very time consuming. So that 
started yes. to be less and less feasible on a regular basis. That's when I discovered board games, which uh, was an exciting discovery because I find that board games, although they will, I think, never rival the depth and the character-based storytelling that a good, a well-run RPG provides, it provides such a close sort of uh, a proxy of that in such compact time. You know, you think about something like Eldritch Horror, which just like packs a whole RPG campaign basically into a time frame of three hours. So to me, board games became like this amazing, accessible, easy to get to the table way to experience these narratives. And also one that I found more inclusive than RPGs because my wife will never play D&D with me as she has told me herself in very no uncertain terms. (laughs) But she's, she's a big fan of board games because, you know, sometimes... They have, like the variety of themes of games is so vast that everyone can find something for themselves. And you know, even if she doesn't want to play Eldritch Horror that I mentioned before, or you know, the LOTR LC, uh, Living Card Game, playing something like Pandemic or uh, you know, Takedo, there is some so much variety there that I I found that to be more inclusive. And after a while, yeah, it's much more accessible. Oh, absolutely, and that's I think a great part about the hobby is that it's so much more. Well, it, it's very welcoming on its own terms. Um, and because I, I always took found enjoyment in creating things, um, after about, I think, six or so years of playing board games consistently and enthusiastically, I thought I would give a shot at uh, sort of making my own. And that's how Cauldron came to be. Um, I'm very lucky to have some creatively inclined friends who helped a lot with the graphic design and art for that game. And, uh, you know, we took it to Kickstarter in 2015 and with, uh, with the help, as you mentioned, of about a thousand people made it a reality. And that was a very exciting process just in terms of going through the whole life cycle of it, you know, from the conceptualization to creating how it's going to work, to playtesting, to campaign, yes. which is like this rush of energy and excitement and anxiety sometimes, but ultimately <laughs> very, well, you know how it is. You've, you've run these, right? Uh, it's actually, you know, it, it's it's always been interesting for me to compare how Cauldron was versus how Unbroken is because Cauldron took uh, like 13 days to fund and like it hit yeah. mid, mid-campaign slump hard, right? Because like there was excitement at first, you know, I got all my friends to back, so there was like this big surge of funding and then like it slows down and it just like it only inches towards that funding is like, uh, is it going to get there? And it's just like you're a nervous wreck and nothing seems to work. And uh, by comparison, Unbroken funded in 76 minutes. So they didn't really get to that point. Um, so that was that was a very rewarding experience ultimately, especially because, you know, once everything worked and we got the games to, to backers a couple of months early. So that was, that was wonderful. Um, and then I thought that, you know what, Ultimately, on the balance, that was a fun experience. So it's something I would like to keep doing. And that's how I came to, uh, to Unbroken. Brilliant. It's a brilliant story, Artem, and uh, very much mirrors my own experience of, of board games, role-playing games, and going to Kickstarter and agonizing over funding and then getting involved in, in designing more stuff. Um, but you've just articulated it much better than I could. <laughs> but um, so since Cauldron landed, uh, how has it been received? Because that was back in 2016, was it? Late 2015. Late 2015. Uh, yes. I, I think I think it was received well. I'm like I'm not going to overhype it, 
it it was you know a first design effort for myself. I still think that it's it's a very fun, um, very interactive game, but it I can clearly see that it could be improved in some ways, specifically in the fact that it can be a little bit luck driven in the way that some mechanics work and for the way that it's presented, which is like very kind of like fun, cutesy. Um, Family orientated. Yeah, yeah, but it's a very it's a very cutthroat game. Like there's a lot of hate <laughs> that, and it's something that you know you only learn after being in the design world for some time. That you know some things you don't do, you know, like you don't make people skip a turn, for example, right? Like yeah. that's a well known sort of established thing, but something that I wasn't as aware of back when I was designing Cauldron. But having said that, I still think there is so much, like this wacky take that fun interaction in there that I still bring it out to the table once in a while and I, I get great enjoyment out of it. Um, and for me, one of the, I think one of the more rewarding um, comments to hear on Unbroken that especially appeared during the earlier part of the campaign was people who uh, were saying how excited they were that someone who made Cauldron made another game. So to me, to see that, you know, the, game, the previous game that I made was made such an impression on people that they came back and backed something new that I made, and to hear yeah. people's stories about how they play it, that was really a great experience. So Cauldron is out there, you know, people can get it, and I think it's a fun, very interactive game for people who are okay with a little bit of conflict in it. Like, it's it's ranking okay, well, pretty pretty well, I would say. Um, and uh, I'm not, like, I'm, I look forward to the time when I can give a little bit more attention to it, and perhaps uh, through an expansion, to correct some of the things that I can see being able to, you know, to be improved um, and add new substance to it. You've obviously got the brand loyalty, as you said, from the guys who are coming back for more with your second game, you know, who, who loved the first one enough. So it speaks volumes that, you know, you're, you're looking to do the same and sort of treat them uh, in the same way by going back to it and offering more stuff for it and, you know, improving on it even if, if that's possible. Yeah. One of the things, actually, now that I think about it, I think one of the biggest obstacles that Cauldron had and still has to overcome, and this will sort of segue into Unbroken a little bit, is that the scene at which it aims to be played, you know, the standard one-hour, two to five players kind of setup, is just, it's such a difficult arena to compete in, just because that's where most of the heavyweights come in, right? You come into that and you're competing with Lords of Waterdeep, right? And that's like, <laughs> that's a juggernaut. It's an established, well-oiled machine with like a loyal following and like it's a wonderful game. Yes. One of the reasons I think why I decided to make a solo-only game in Unbroken because I felt like maybe I need a niche that is less well, like where there's a little bit less competition. And to me, solo-only game was like a great... Um, sort of balance between like there is a lot of excitement going on right now about solo games especially about solo only games but it's somewhat of an underdeveloped market so to me that was a great opportunity to jump on and I think the result of Unbroken shows that indeed uh, there was a right gamble to make yeah absolutely I mean over 10,000 backers I mean going back uh, about 10 years um, 
if you were to make a comment about is there a solo version of this game or other solo rules for this game you know you'd get attacked or laughed at for it back <laughs> in the day um, and now of course there's pretty much every Kickstarter that comes out has some kind of solo option or solo expansion or uh, solo mode that can be included um, but I would say maybe the entirely solo games like you've gone with with Unbroken are the are sort of few and far between really uh, so it was definitely a bold move for you to um, to go out there and, and say this is specifically a solo game. Do, do you play a lot of solo games? Is that something you're passionate about, Artem? I do. I I think due to my family circumstances, um, because I have two young children, a five-year-old and a four-month-old, I don't really get out much. <laughs> so it's, it's difficult for me to um, either attend or organize sort of substantive game nights. Yes. Just you know, I think I think that's a not an uncommon circumstance in people. So, <laughs> but I do love playing games. So I have like a whole separate uh, shelf on my uh, like a little square on my IKEA. You know, the standard issue board gamer. What is it? Calax, I think, shelving unit. Uh, that's only uh, solo player games. So I personally, you know, like Friday was a big. Um, influence on Unbroken and the game that I think is so well designed and is so portable and so simple yet so devious in its challenge that it provides that that was a great great I think sort of inspiration for how I wanted Unbroken to turn out and sometimes I also play something more substantial in terms of solo games like you know the Eldritch Horror that I uh, uh, mentioned earlier which is again a great adventure to be had if you have a couple of hours again, something. Yeah, huge time difference between those two games. Friday, you're talking about 20 minutes, and Eldritch Horror, as you say, is a is a beast. Exactly, and you'll know you'll know that Unbroken lands like safely closer to Friday, and that's again <laughs> on purpose. <laughs> the right. way I describe Unbroken is like it, it's a game for a gaming deprived parent who is enthusiastic <laughs> and wants to get in more gaming, but like they just don't have the people to play with, and they just don't have a lot of time to bust out their mage knight, and uh, <laughs> like all all you need is one player yourself and like twenty to thirty minutes, and there you yeah. go. A tense, compact, challenging experience on Kickstarter. So it's probably. One of my most, if not the most anticipated game right now for me, because it speaks to me enormously. A solo game set in a fantasy world where you're alone in a dungeon, basically. Um, you know, that's that's catnip for me. <laughs> as much as I love like big miniatures games and things like that, the behemoths that come along, something like this, something like Unbroken, speaks to me a lot more and seems a lot more exciting. Can you just tell us a little about, about the setting for, for anyone who's listening who, who doesn't know about Unbroken? What's the sort of elevator pitch, the theme of the game? Absolutely. So Unbroken is, it starts where most dungeon games would end. You are a part of uh, a party of adventurers who go down into this underground complex filled with monsters because they think that they are badass adventurers who won't, like are going to get a bunch of treasure and kill some monsters. And they grossly overestimate their abilities and they <laughs> ambushed and massacred. Um, and uh, you, the protagonist, you're not quite dead, but you wake up kind of almost dead, and you realize that everything that you planned was just a total disaster, and <laughs> basically you just need to survive at this point, survive and get the hell out of this place. So and escape to the surface sort of thing. 
Exactly, exactly. So unlike most games where you try to, you know, delve deep into the dungeon in search of glory and treasure and, you know, mighty quests, here your your goal is quite modest. You, you're just trying to keep your life and get the, get the hell out of there. And I, I, really, I really enjoyed this, the premise of it, because, like, it's fun to subvert tropes. And there is no, no trope, I think, more well-worn than a party of adventurers descending boldly into the dungeon. <laughs> and I, I think it's, it's been done so much to the point where, like, it's becoming basically like a shorthand or a joke where, you know, you see all these, like, cutesy kind of, like, little tiny elf maiden, pew, 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 fireballs <laughs> to the skeleton, and, like, all skeletons have to be cute now with, like, giant eyes. Like chibi and, sort of miniatures exactly, and things. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think, well, of course, you know, there are people who enjoy that. So absolutely, I don't, uh, you know, try to negate the value that that brings to people. But I think what it leads to is kind of like it erases the initial threat and danger that, uh, you know, the descent into the dungeon actually involved. Where, like, anytime when, for example, when I run RPGs, I try to conceptualize what... Like, why isn't everyone an adventurer? Because being an adventurer is like the, the most awesome thing you can be in a DNT world. <laughs> Just flinging like, fireballs around and bringing exactly, people back from the dead. <laughs> exactly. Who wants to be a peasant? Like, why do you want to be a peasant when you can just, like, go kill a couple of kobolds and, like, boom, now you're level two. You're, like, three times as uh, likely to survive anything. And the answer to that is that adventurers are much more likely to be killed. Yeah. You know, the things that they do are very, very dangerous. And that danger, I find, often is lacking in the games where, like, survival is presumed and you're playing to, you know, do heroic deeds. And to me, sort of going on the flip side of that and saying that, like, wait, 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 before we get to the heroic deeds, like, these monsters, they're monsters that you're fighting, they're devious, powerful creatures. And yes. uh, the likelihood of them winning is quite high. So maybe let's make sure, you know, you can cover your bases first and not starve, right? <laughs> not collapse from exhaustion. It may it may be like a little bit of a masochistic view, uh, but to or me, sadistic. Or, <laughs> you or sound sadistic. like a punishing dungeon master. <laughs> uh, you know, it's been it's been said. <laughs> no, I, I I always view dungeon mastering as like your your job is to make everyone make sure everyone at the table has a good time. So I am a. I'm a very responsible dungeon master and ensuring that. Um, yeah, so I, I try to bring back that the weight of the situation that you are in and the weight of the decisions that you're making and the consequences of these. And to show that even the smallest things, you know, like things that can be sometimes taken for granted, like not starving or, you know, not collapsing from exhaustion, are things that are legitimate dangers. And... I think succeeded somewhat in based on you know the, the feedback that I'm getting from people who are playing the print and play that it is in fact exciting where it's not over the top and like you're not swinging your flaming blade at 15 giants at once <laughs> like this kind of micro approach to dungeon delving can be quite successful yeah, just um, to cut in there, Artem, you mentioned the print and play. You've had the, the print and play version of the game available for over a year, is it now? You've, so it's it's been doing the rounds with playtesters for publicly for quite a while. Is that right? Yep, yep. I think uh, about a year ago is when I made the first very ugly looking uh, print and play uh, available to backers. 
the biggest feedback that I received at the moment was that I am uh, stealing from uh, the computer game Darkest Dungeon, and I had to uh, explain to people that like I had to put some sort of placeholder graphics on it. As soon as I oh, get my own graphics, <laughs> I'll put it on. But Darkest Dungeon had a huge influence and inspiration to this game, so I needed right. something to put on there. So it's either borrow that art or it was going to be stick men drawn by yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm, I'm a terrible, I'm a terrible drawer. So that's probably, <laughs> probably all the, all the best that it worked out the way it did. But having the game out in public uh, access, I think, was a huge, huge um, win because it allowed people to bec- become familiar with it. Even those who didn't end up playing, it kind of like tweaks people's memories. Now I, I hear some uh, comments about like, "Oh, hey, this was out with like looking all ugly," uh, and like, "Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. You remember it." Uh, but most importantly, it got a chance, I think, for uh, an establishment of a community around it because some of the people who tried it and liked it are still like there is one uh, one gentleman uh, from France who liked the game so much that he provided so much helpful. Um, advice and input into the development of the game just from being a uh, playtester. But now he is a collaborator on the project and he's doing amazing work in terms of answering other people's questions and just really helping run the campaign. So this establishment of a community around the game was the biggest benefit, I think, about making the print and play available because that this is really priceless stuff yeah you're basically establishing a pre-existing audience aren't you before you even launch i guess exactly exactly and, and we know of course you know the preparation for the kickstarter the excitement that you drum up before the campaign even launches is really when you determine whether it's going to be good or not right no matter absolutely yeah it's kind of like the, the two sides of it no matter how good of a game you make if no one ever comes to visit your page no one will ever appreciate it. And if your game is crap, no matter how many people come to see it, <laughs> if, if it's bad, no one's going to back it. So you gotta, you got to make sure that both of those bases are covered. And it sounds like you've done it beautifully. Um, did, were there any other tricks that you used to sort of, not tricks, but methods that you used to market Unbroken? Um, obviously, you had the pre-existing audience from Cauldron and you had the print and play out there. But you also got the interest of quite a number of video reviewers as well, didn't you? Including... Um, Rado, for example. Yeah, well, that I had my review sort of outreach in two steps, and the first one was reaching out to more like large audience, established reviewers, and Rado was one of them. And I'm so grateful to Rado for taking the time to review it and the kind of enthusiastic endorsement he provided for the game. Like I, I still remember that morning, um, a couple of months back, when Rado sent me the link for his review. And I just, I remember watching it and I'm like, oh my God, he loved it so much. This is amazing. <laughs> like it totally made my day. And I think that that video is still probably the single, if I had to pick out like a single brick that contributed the most, that would probably be it. So Richard, thank you very much if you're listening. Um, but basically what I did is I had a list of all the major reviewers and I reached out to those of them whom I thought the game would be a good fit for. And uh, some of them responded, some of them weren't interested, which is absolutely fine. Things didn't work out with some, clicked into place with others. But I think the most, and then I went on to like create prototypes with uh, cards printed from, you know, I think, Game Crafter and self-made boxes 
which describes, you know, explains why all the boxes that people see in these video previews, they look kind of uh, iffy. That's because they're like your standard packing Uline boxes with, uh, yeah. with graphics <laughs> like plastered onto them. <laughs> the final box will obviously look much nicer. Um, and the thing that I did afterwards, actually, I think also helped a lot is when I went out and I did research specifically on uh, reviewers who focus on solo games. And that turned out to be such an amazingly intertwined, enthusiastic, welcoming community. So that's people like um, Elizabeth Davidson from uh, Beyond Solitaire. Uh, that's uh, people like Giles from uh, both sides of my table. That's uh, There is this guy, Kenley Brown from uh, Lords of Tabletop, who is like the most enthusiastic person to talk about Unbroken ever. <laughs> I just can't, can't get <laughs> enough of him. If, pe- if people want to see like a really, really super fun guy talk about Unbroken, do do uh, Google Lord of Tabletop Unbroken. <laughs> it's worth the price of admission. The guy loves the freaking <laughs> fungus in the game. Um, yeah, and I offered to all of these like up and coming, basically, reviewers, because their audiences are not as large and established as someone like, you know, Rado or Undead Viking, but their focus is so specific on solo games and their engagement in the community is so passionate and enthusiastic and earnest that I, I thought that I would be remiss not to reach out to them. And at that point, I didn't have any more prototypes, so I offered to send print-and-play copies. Just I, I would craft them, and I would send them to, to those people. And so many of them responded, and so many of them played and recorded and shared their opinions of the game that I, like, I, I think it's been an absolutely great and positive influence on the campaign to have them be aware of it and to talk about the campaign and to really just have that positive awareness out there. And really, it's a testament to the kind of community that exists around solo gaming and the kind of excitement that generates from people. Definitely, definitely. And I mean, you've got obviously the videos, the print and play version of the game out there as well. What do you find people responding to most about your campaign? I mean, you've got you've got 10,000 backers there. So imagine managing the comment section alone must be a staggering achievement. But what is it that you find that people mostly coming back to the campaign for? That's an interesting question. I have I have an idealistic response and a pragmatic one. Um, <laughs> so I think the pragmatic one I'll start with, just to end up on a high note. I think out of those 10,000 people, most people, realistically, they come by, they see sort of a high-level description of the game, they know that this is something that they will enjoy, they click support, and they probably don't come back. They'll get their game, they'll love it, and that's probably like 7,000 of 10,000 people at back. Which is fine, again, you know, like, people's, uh, people have a free choice about to what extent they want to be involved and engaged, and if all 10,000 people yeah. would start actively comment in the comment section, I would go insane. it's for the best that that's the way it is and for those for that silent majority I think it really comes down to the fact that it's an inexpensive game with a clearly stated purpose that looks like it's been specifically crafted for that purpose it's not a very exciting thing to say but that's basically it it's (laughs) it's an affordable product that looks like it's been made specifically for what, what I'm selling but for the smaller part of the community around Unbroken, I think 
the interaction that I aim to provide in the comments section and through the updates and through engaging backers in decision making, such as, you know, which one of the backer created skill cards is going to make it into the game or, you know, which one of the characters would you like to see as, uh, you know, the alternative art for. For that minority, I think the interaction that I provide as a creator and the fact that I'm, I'm there on the comment section every day answering questions and engaging with people, I think that makes people come back. Definitely. I mean, people obviously respond to creators who are, are down there in the in the trenches, as it were, in the comment section and responding and, and back and forth in. And obviously you've, you've taken that to another level. In fact, if we go back to Cauldron just briefly, is it true that you ended up eating a, a soup that was derived from <laughs> ingredients that the backers sent to you or something? Yes, Can you explain yeah, what happened that was, with that? That was a fun time. Um, so basically for uh, for the $1 reward for Cauldron, if, like, if you didn't want the game, you could just like sign up for the campaign and you had an option to add an ingredient to the soup that I would make and eat. And there was, I think, about 60 or 70 people who suggested... Um, who suggested ingredients. So there is a video of me uh, brewing this disgusting looking, like <laughs> the things that went in there. Like there was pig snout, um, <laughs> ginger ale, like garlic and sriracha. And it was not great. It was not, not a great uh, culinary achievement, but such a fun thing to do. Has your body recovered from it yet? <laughs> well, to some extent, to some extent. <laughs> my body might have, but my mind is still reeling. <laughs> I wouldn't say that that was um, necessarily a pitfall of, of Kickstarter because that's that was, that was your own fault. <laughs> it was, it was. You know what? One of the things is that I was thinking about doing something like that for Unbroken. And then uh, I remember my wife telling me that, like, are you are you stupid? Like, what if you get a lot of backers and they all like say something, either you know for whatever kind of format that you end up choosing to do? I remember asking, like, how many people do do you think I'll get? And in the end, I decided not to like be overly creative and just settle on one dollar being like here you get updates. That's it. Um, I'm just so so grateful for my wife for uh, stopping me from doing any sort of creative things because if 10,000 people would get creative, I'm not sure I would survive to uh, to deliver the project. You'd be eating a lot more than just your words. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Obviously, everything that we've talked about so far has been a really positive sort of impact on the on the game and the campaign. Have you had any pitfalls either through Cauldron or Unbroken or just a, as the experience of being a, a Kickstarter creator? Have you had any sort of largely negative experiences that you've been able to learn from for next time? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think the biggest thing that I learned from Cauldron in terms of uh, the negatives, one of the mistakes that I've made was um, just a poor timing in terms of my uh, fulfillment efforts, specifically um, specifically my fulfillment in, uh, in the U.S., uh, it happened so that the game made it to the stores before it got to some of the backers. And that was uh, right. a big, big no-no. And uh, my backers were rightly upset about that. So that was a big adjustment adjustment that they made for Unbroken, is that uh, I'm actually I'm not getting it to the stores. I am focusing the first wave of it exclusively on getting the game to the backers. And that way, I know that the 10,000 people who put their trust in me and the project, 
that their needs are met first and foremost and any sort of follow-up work that I do or not do uh, with the game's future comes after that. So that was a big, yeah. big lesson to learn for me. Um, I think... Um, I, you know, it's, it's interesting, but I, I can't really say that there was a, a huge amount of other things that I would describe as... Pit, I, guess, I guess the one thing that I learned from Cauldron is that um, no matter how much how, or how well the campaign does, there is always this sort of mental expectation of like, oh, you know, it's sucking, it's not doing as well as it should have been, you know, you didn't do such a good job, and it kind of it wears on you as a as a person. You have to so, be resilient, don't you? You do, you do. And I found I found it difficult for Cauldron to come up with that resilience sort of on the spot. And thankfully, I didn't really need that resilience in Unbroken because of the way that it performed, thanks to all yeah. the backers. But I did, I did prepare for it. Like I prepared, and the way that I went about it is that I basically made like a spreadsheet of these are the different ways that the campaign can go, and this is how it lines up with my expectations, right? So that okay. if, if it goes just okay, I know to feel just okay and not to feel like terrible that it's not blasting through goals. Yeah. Now, thankfully, I didn't need that spreadsheet at all because <laughs> I think I think I got to the boldest prediction on that spreadsheet. I think by day two or three of the campaign, so I just stopped looking at it. Uh, but that that would be a thing that, you know, regardless of the amount or the the size of the campaign, something that I will continue doing is just to set expectations clearly for myself <clears throat> and to really monitor, you know, your own mental state and to make sure that you don't dip into the negatives definitely speaks volumes that you were mentally prepared i thought you were going to say meditation but spreadsheets that's uh, that's another mm. method of preparing not, for it not not the med- not the meditation kind of guy <laughs> sorry what, what what did you find actually you're a you're an accomplished kickstarter creator have you ever found anything like that in your experience uh what pitfalls well more like like neg- negative experiences yeah yeah, thank all you. of them. Yeah, I think I've, <laughs> I've I've been through the mill on uh, on probably the first campaign was was the biggest learning curve uh, with Gloomy Killforth. We had um, pretty much every sort of criticism we could imagine <laughs> leveled at the campaign for one reason or another, and it was interesting because you have to sort of pass out the negative feedback that's useful mm-hmm. from the negative feedback that's pointless. As a first time creator. It was very much a case that I was trying to please every single person that commented or, you know, that fed back in, in any way whatsoever until it became apparent that actually there's a, a tier of people who were never going to contribute to make the game better. And so you have to sort of filter out the noise and concentrate on the things that you can change or that you want to change. Because at the end of the day, whatever game you produce and however su- successful it's going to be, it's not going to tick the boxes for everyone. Yep. So... You've got to find like-minded players who are into the same games and focus on delivering the best possible experience you can for those guys and for yourself and so that you still remain passionate about it throughout the whole process. Because if you let any of that get on top of you and bring you down, that's when you'll start to fail and stagger and sort of look for different ways to improve your game, which perhaps it doesn't even need, or your campaign. And so as long as you stay true to your purpose and you listen to the feedback that is going to be useful and that you can use to help develop yourself, your campaign or your game, then that's the best way forward. But 
yeah, you, you definitely have to put up um, your filters and become thick-skinned, I would say, to, to what people can say. As long as you do that, the, the process of funding and developing a creative project like this is quite exhilarating, as I'm sure you know you experienced with Cauldron the first time, and that you're going to experience on 10 times the level with Unbroken when that starts to land. Yeah, that, that, that's a good reflection. I, I think I really agree with you about the fact that you, you can't discount feedback from backers. It's, it's good to take it constructively. And, yeah. and it's also constructive to say that, you know what, friend, maybe I, it doesn't sound like this is a game that you would enjoy. So I can't, I can't help you. Yeah, and, and that's I, okay. I think, I think people have to realize that that's okay. You know, if the game's not for them, you know, move on. There's a billion other games yeah, out there. It's maybe a- try one of the other 3,000 games published this year. <laughs> you know, just on the off chance you might like that. <laughs> one of the other 3,000 that's on Kickstarter right now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It launched today. <laughs> okay, well, we swung slightly towards like the sort of negative things that can happen on Kickstarter there. So let's go back to sort of a more positive spin. What are your preferred types of game mechanics? What excites you most as a player? You mentioned a few games already about Lords of Waterdeep and Takedo and games like that that you play with your misses there as well. But what are the what are the sort of games that inspire you or the designers, the game designers that inspire you? You know, it's it's interesting because I my enjoyment of games very rarely gets attached to a specific mechanism. Like I can't I can't tell you that I'm a fan of deck building or worker placement or yeah. resource management or what have you, right? Because to me what ends up being stuck in my mind is the overall experience that you get from playing a game. The feeling that you ex- that you get, the, the memories, the highlights. And that can originate from pretty much any mechanism, right? Be it the Lord of the Rings uh, living card game where it's all like cards and building your deck and spending inordinate amounts of money on all the expansions. <laughs> Just trying to keep up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, just like having this intricate plan fall into place and having the the narrative that's developing in the story be told through these pretty abstract mechanisms, you know, it, it can be, you know, even, even things that I mentioned, like, you know, you take something like Pandemic Legacy. I, I don't know how to classify the mechanisms of that game. All I know is that it was an amazing experience in terms of the narrative that it, it conveyed, right? Yeah. The fact that you felt like the th- you know things were developing right in front of your eyes, and you had this feeling that you, the, the actions that you took contributed to that. And like, for, I think for most of the games that I truly really enjoy, you know, be it Eldritch Horror where you feel sort of plunged into this despair of a world going slowly into flames and you're trying to, you know, fight back against it using whatever resources are at your disposal. Or the Takaido, where it's all breezy, light, travels through uh, late medieval Japan. Eating sushi. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, or, or even, you know, best treehouse ever, which is the game that I play the most right now, because uh, I play with my son mostly, and uh, he's uh, he's a little addicted to uh, best treehouse ever. Thank you, Scott Alms. Um, you know, even there, just the fact that you have this fun, breezy experience of, like, balancing your tree so that it stays, and, like, like calling out the, these names of the rooms. I think the, the balance that every game has to find for itself is the kind of story that it wants to tell, the kind of impression that it wants to leave. 
and yes. then build the the mechanics, build the components and the rules really to for all of the things in that box to contribute specifically to that story. Um, I think um, what, what, yeah, um, there is a Polish designer uh, Ignacy Trzewiczek, who um, who made Robinson Crusoe and Imperial Settlers, and uh, you know I'm sure many other things that are slipping my mind right now. And he uh, he had this book called Board Games That Tell Stories, and that was a very interesting book for me to read because that's kind of his own um, mindset that he described in there. That's very similar to what I just mentioned: is that you have to start with a story that's being told and then fit everything to that kind of mold that you're trying to enter. Theme first, yeah, yeah. So that that's how that's how I view games. You know, I think it doesn't matter what kind of like. If, if you're managing dice or you're collecting sets, as long as it makes you feel like what you want to be feeling, that that makes the game design successful. And I hope in Unbroken, the the mad sort of scramble to get your few precious, you know, scarce resources that uh, that you need to survive, really makes you feel like that's in fact something that's happening. Definitely. I couldn't agree more. In fact, it sounds like we're coming from a very similar place in terms of the fancy games that inspired us, the the themes and stories that we're trying to create with games as well. I'm conscious that you'll be giving up building tree houses soon for crawling through dungeons with your little... <laughs> like uh, like my boy's eight years old now, so we're, uh, we're constantly battling goblins and things like that in our games. So yeah. you've got all that to look forward to as well. Just looking at the, the work that you've done with, uh, with Tears to Many Mothers that really comes through and the way that that game really focuses on this like very gritty early medieval warfare so i definitely see that you you subscribe to the same kind of ideology definitely definitely i mean 1066 is such a huge date in british history as, as kids we we're taught about it and for me all i took away from it was like knights and castles and horses and swords and you know and it kind of stuck with me for uh, what well, decades really and so it, i definitely wanted to bring a narrative that was perhaps going to teach a little bit about history as well, but it was definitely the narrative that came first rather than any sort of um, game mechanic experiment, you know, or anything like that. Um, and I think that's definitely how I approach all my games as well, is I've got this idea, how do I tell the story? And then, you know, bring the, the game mechanics that will match it. And it looks like that's what you've done with, with Unbroken as well. So Yeah, try but listen, um, Artem, I'm conscious of the time here and I just wanted to say once again, congratulations on your success so far. You're over £208,000 funded as I'm looking at the uh, Kickstarter page right now with over 10,000 backers, which is an incredible achievement and you still have eight days to go. Is there anything you'd like to say to listeners about where they can find you and or, or interact with you online? Well, I am on Twitter at Art Safarov. I'm also very responsive on Board Game Geek or on Kickstarter, which you're welcome to join. And uh, I, I very much welcome input and uh, you know impressions that people have in terms of looking at Unbroken. And I just really wanted to thank you, Tristan, to, uh, for this opportunity to speak with you and uh, to your listeners through you. And uh, I wanted to wish you luck with a strong finish to the Lifeform campaign as well. 
Thank you very much. <laughs> Cheers, Artem. It's been fantastic having you on the show. I feel like we could carry on speaking for hours about all of this stuff, but I'm going to have to call it here. Um, and I'm conscious we're both going to get back to our families and everything. But thanks again so much for coming on the show. Congratulations on your, all your success. And let's hook up again soon for a chat once the game's landed and, and we can talk about it even more. I look forward to it. Thanks very much. Have a great rest of the day.